1: Where no science show has gone before. The Naked Scientists.
2: This week, a new way to save the threatened tuna, the discovery of a new clot-busting system that keeps blood vessels clear in the brain, and the solution to a million-year-old mystery on Mars. Scientists have discovered the origins of some rather strange spiral formations at the planet's north, and it turns out South Poles. Hello, welcome to this week's Naked Scientists. I'm Chris Smith, and also here are Dominic Ford from our Naked Astronomy podcast. Hello, Dominic. Hi, Chris. And also Helen Scales, of course. Helen.
3: Hello, and also this week we're answering your science questions. Lots of them, because it's our science question and answer extravaganza. So stay tuned to find out whether artificial sweeteners can alter your metabolism, can the weather cause earthquakes... And can a moon have its own moon? Plus, in Question of the Week, Diana will be tackling this delightful question.
4: Why does eating sugar puffs make your wee smell funny?
3: Wonderful. Well, the answers to all those and many more are on the way. And of course, if you've got a question you're burning for us to answer, we'd love to hear from you. So stay tuned and we'll give you details of how to get in touch just in a moment.
2: Helen, thanks very much. Also later on in the programme, Ben and Dave will be with us for another fantastic kitchen science experiment. This week they'll show you how Humphrey Davy's famous miners, Davy Lamp, the safety lamp, actually works. And if you want to have a go, you'll need a kitchen sieve, a candle and something to light it with. If you'd like to get in touch with us here at The Naked Scientist, the email address is chris at thenakedscientist.com or you can send us a tweet on Twitter, it's at
1: Naked Scientists. The Naked Scientist Podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.net.
2: This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith, Helen Scales and Dominic Ford. Helen, what have you got for us in the world of science news this week?
3: This week we've got some good and some bad news for bluefin tuna. Some new research has pinpointed their favourite breeding spots in the Gulf of Mexico. It's good news because it means that these imperiled fish can have conservation efforts directly targeted in the right places. The problem is that they are also overlapping with areas where the recent Deepwater Horizon oil spill is happening, so really putting these fish in even more trouble. Now, using a combination of data on where tuna are caught by fisheries and studies that have tagged and tracked individual tunas, Steve Teo from the University of California Davis and Barbara Block from Stanford University, both in the States, have built a computer model that accurately predicted where bluefins are likely to spawn based on oceanographic data gathered by satellites and weather buoys. Now, their study, which was published in the journal PLOS One this week, showed that blue fins have a very strong preference for spawning in two particular hot spots of the gulf they, they even liken this to spawning salmon that, that come back up to their natal rivers that seems they really come back to very similar areas and they seem to be hunting out circular swirling water masses called cyclonic eddies and these are cooler and more nutrient rich than warmer currents around the rest of the Gulf. Now, in contrast, the more common yellowfin tuna spawn all the way across the Gulf of Mexico, and they seem to be much more tolerant than bluefins to a wider range of environmental conditions, including... Temperature. So
2: now, this kind of explains a few things, doesn't it? Why bluefin, because they're so fussy, are more threatened. But how can we use this sort of information to inform survival and also conservation strategies?
3: Right, well, I'd have to say that the threat to the bluefins comes down to the fact that they're extremely extraordinarily sought after for sushi. Um, One was sold this year in Japan for, can you believe it, 170,000 US dollars, um, about 16 million yen. So these are very, very sought after, and that's why. But one of the reasons... In fact, um, in the Gulf of Mexico, they haven't been caught um, for the last 20 years deliberately. There's been a ban on bluefin tuna fishing, but they are still caught in fisheries that target yellowfin tuna, these other fish that have different, um, different habits and spawn in different areas. So the key to why this new study is very important is because it can show us where the yellowfin tuna fleets can carry on catching fish, but hopefully without catching the bluefins. Because, in fact, it comes down to the practicalities even of telling the fishing boats, OK, if you can see that you're in an area where you've got conditions that mean you're likely to find bluefin tuna and therefore you might catch them accidentally... Don't put your fishing lines in there. Go somewhere else and you still will catch yellow fins, probably, but hopefully you'll leave those bluefin tuna alone because the declines in the Gulf of Mexico are extraordinary. We're talking 80% decline in these species in the bluefin since the 1970s. But like I said, it is a bit unfortunate that what we found are these bluefin hotspots that really coincide with where these oil spill has just happened. So that could really be another problem for these fish to deal with and they've already got enough on their plates as it is.
2: So when we buy tuna... In a tin, for example, that's yellowfin. That won't be the bluefin tuna.
3: It certainly won't be bluefin tuna, unless it's a very expensive can of tuna. It's yellowfin, there are other smaller species too, called skipjack and things like that, um, which are much less threatened than bluefin. Now, you would know you're eating bluefin, you certainly would know from the cost of your dinner, I think.
2: And you mentioned that they're threatened because of the oil problem as well, so that oil presumably is threatening to drift into these cyclonic eddies and concentrate there thereby disturbing the breeding ground for these bluefin.
3: That's it, and we have no idea at the moment how sensitive their larvae are likely to be to these kind of chemicals. Um, we really have no idea. Let's hope it's not as bad as we might expect, but we're just going to have to wait and see.
2: So tuna and oil, then. <laughs> Sorry, Helen. <sighs> Well, also uh, something that caught my eye this week was a paper in Nature. It's by a guy at uh, Northwestern University, Carson Lamb. Uh, What they have done is to discover a whole new way that blood vessels have got for ridding themselves of obstructions, so-called microemboli. Now what they've done is to use a very clever imaging technique called two-photon imaging and this means you can see actually quite deep into brain tissue and using mice they infuse tiny little clots or emboli, obstructions, into the blood vessels and then track where they go and a small number of them, a few percent, lodge in small blood vessels enabling the researchers to then say well how do those blood vessels deal with those obstructions. Now something really amazing happened when they did this because the conventional wisdom was that when a clot lodges in a blood vessel, there are various chemicals in the blood and cells that will slowly eat away at that clot and restore flow through the blood vessel. So Carson Lam and his colleagues were really quite surprised when they did these imaging studies and found that after a couple of days, what had been a blockage inside a vessel, when they looked back, was now outside the vessel. And to find out what was going on, they took very high magnification studies through thin sections of brain tissue and blood vessels, and they found that wherever a blood clot was lodged in a vessel, the cells called endothelial cells that line the walls, the inner lining of blood vessels, those cells were sending out very thin extensions of their cytoplasm, the surface layer, the membrane of the cell, which was going round and investing, almost like a cloak, the obstruction inside the vessel... Once it was completely enclosed, the cell was then secreting something called a matrix metalloproteinase, an enzyme, which opened up a gap between it and the cell next door to it, making a hole, and the cells just effectively booted the obstruction out through the hole and into the what's called the extravascular space. They put it outside the blood vessel, and this enabled the flow to come back. Now, why this is so important is that, A, we'd never appreciated this can happen before, but, B, there are lots of disorders which are related to the death of nerve cells, which occur because blood flow to the brain is insufficient. Nerve cells are very, very sensitive to low blood flow and so-called hypoxia. And... What's interesting is that people who have diabetes and also people who get high blood pressure have thickened blood vessels in the brain because of those two disorders. They also are more prone to developing damage to nerve cells and dementias. So one intriguing possibility is that the reason their nerve cells break down and die more readily under those conditions is because they're less good at clearing out their blood vessels via this route. So now the scientists are going to go and have a look and see whether or not this is applying in this condition, and it may also give us clues as to fresh ways to unblock blood vessels in future. So a very fruitful piece of research, given how much of a problem stroke and other vascular injury sorts of things are. Dominic?
4: Now, astronomers studying enigmatic grooves on the surface of Mars have uncovered some secrets about the planet's historic climate. In a paper published in Nature this week, Isaac Smith and John Hort of the University of Texas Institute for Geophysics analysed new radar images of the grooves taken by the American Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, and European Mars Express spacecraft, and what they found is that beneath each of the grooves there are indentations in all the stratified layers of deposit beneath the surface down to a depth of almost 700 metres. Now that's quite a startling result, because many people had thought that these were merely scratch like features on the surface, carved out by erosion, extending down to only a few tens of metres. But we can now discard those theories because they have no no way of explaining why the subsurface geology is affected as much as the surface itself. And a much better theory is that there's some finely balanced combination of wind erosion and wind deposition at work, which keeps these troughs remarkably stable and well-reserved, as new layers of material are being laid down. Because they're not small, them. are they,
2: these troughs? They're, I mean, they're, they're sort of Grand Canyon times 10 or something, aren't they? Huge. And they
4: extend for 60 kilometres or so along the surface. They are huge features. And if it's right that these are um, being preserved as layers of deposit are being put down on top of them, then we can guess their age by knowing that about a millimetre of material per year is laid down on the Martian surface. And that means that they must be somewhere between half a million and two million years old. So that's tremendously old.
3: Yes, these enigmatic grooves are very old indeed. And and what's that going to tell us about what's going on on Mars?
4: Well, it's fascinating because it's potentially telling us about Martian weather systems, not just today, but also hundreds of thousands of years ago. So Smith and Holt have looked at various possible wind-driven processes which could be responsible for the grooves, and they find that quite a complicated cocktail of wind erosion and particle transport is actually needed to keep these troughs in a steady equilibrium. And given the the delicate balance between these processes which is required, the findings seem to preclude any recent climate change on Mars.
2: Which is encouraging.
4: Indeed. <laughs> At least yes. we
2: understand what's going on to a certain extent, I suppose.
4: Yes.
3: Well, also this week, a new fossil study reveals that the ancient ancestors of octopuses, squid, and cuttlefish have in fact been swimming through our oceans for at least 30 million years longer than previously thought. Well, originally only a single fossil of a mysterious creature called terrix was found in the famous Burgess Shale deposits in Canada. And for a really long time, researchers were completely stumped as to what kind of animal it was. Well, now writing in the journal Nature, Martin Smith from the University of Toronto in Canada leads a study that reveals a series of key characteristics that tie nectocaris to the group of mollusks, including octopuses and squid, known as the cephalopods. Over 90 new specimens have been found of the tiny creatures that are between 2 and 4 centimetres in length. They had large stalked eyes and a pair of grasping tentacles, which the researchers think they probably used to hunt down prey and eat it. They were carnivores, that's quite important. And they also think that these creatures had a system of jet propulsion, which they used to push themselves through the water by forcing water through a nozzle-like funnel. And that's very similar to modern-day cephalopods today. Um, Nectocaris evolved around 500 million years ago. And importantly, that's not long after the so-called Cambrian explosion, when a plethora of complex multicellular life emerged over a very short amount of time. And that set the stage for the evolution of many of the animals we still see around today.
2: Presumably these would have been soft-bodied in the same way as an octopus is today, so that would explain why the fossils are so hard to come by, presumably.
3: Absolutely, and that's why the Burgess Shell is such an extraordinary collection of fossils because there are lots of soft creatures that are very difficult to normally fossilise but there have been just the right conditions set for them to be able to fossilise and they've found a lot more of these little soft-bodied tiny creatures, and in fact we think we even know how these little Nectocaris creatures died Um, their gills are choked with fine deposits telling us that they probably succumbed to an underwater mudslide, and that's what brought them to an end, as well as what's fossilised and and left those remains to show us 500 million years later that, in fact, um, they were the ancestors of uh, of octopuses and squids and so on. They didn't have a shell yet. That's very important. We thought previously that this group evolved from a group of other mollusks that did have shells. Probably they actually evolved those shells later on. We've got things like nautiluses and ammonites, which are now extinct. They have shells which they use actually to help them be, float around the oceans. We thought they started off with those, but actually it seems they probably they, they evolved later on. So it's really telling us quite a bit about those modern uh, cephalopods that are still around, how they evolved, and, and just what's been going on on that particular branch of the um, animal kingdom.
2: Well, also in the news this week, uh, researchers in Seattle have discovered that, at least as far as gut bugs go... You have to be the right shape to be a success. We knew the size was important in some contexts. Shape now turns out to be equally so. The bacteria in question are Helicobacter pylori, and this bacteria lives in our digestive system, and it's also been linked to the formation of stomach ulcers and stomach cancer. Now, intriguingly, it has a very distinctive spiral shape, which scientists have thought was there to help the bacteria to survive and also move around in the gut. But new research has now shown that the spiral bacteria definitely do a lot better than if we straighten them out and make mutant forms that don't have that spiral shape. And so this suggests there might be a clue there as to new ways that we can fend off this infection. And joining us to explain how they've discovered this from the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Centre in Seattle is Dr Nina Salama. Hello Nina. Hello. Welcome to The Naked Scientist. Tell us if you would first of all, what is H. pylori in a little bit more detail than I went into and how does it cause disease?
5: Helicobacter pylori is a bacterium that lives in the stomach, and when it was discovered in the early 80s by Barry Marshall and Robin Warren from Australia, uh, their finding was, was pretty revolutionary because people thought that no bacteria lived in the stomach because of its high acidity. But these bacteria live in this very thick mucus that protects our stomach cells from the acid in the lumen and uh, these scientists cultured them from patients with ulcers because as you say this bacterium is associated with development of ulcers but it turns out that about half of the world carries this bacteria in their stomach and what it does is it causes inflammation most people survive with this inflammation and aren't bothered by it but some people will get ulcers and, and then a smaller number of people can actually get gastric cancer. And Helicobacter pylori was the is the only bug at this point listed as a carcinogen by the World Health Organization.
2: So obviously finding ways to make it less likely that a person will become colonized and carry the bug would be very, very helpful because it means that then there'd be less prospect of at least some people developing those stomach pathologies that you mentioned. But tell us about the shape of the bacterium.
5: Well, as you say, Helicobacter pylori sort of evident in its name, is a helical rod-shaped bacteria. Thus, it looks kind of like a a spiral. And what we wanted to ask was whether shape really was important for it to be able to colonize in its niche, the the stomach mucosa. So what we did was look for mutant forms of the bacteria. Bacteria were individual genes had been inactivated that now had lost normal shape. And interestingly, we found quite a number of different bacteria inactivated in different genes, indicating that the bacteria have a whole program to enact this shape. So the study that we just published analyzed four genes that seem to work together to make this normal helicobacter- helical shape by modifying the cell wall and and basically taking this cage which wraps around the bacteria and gives it its shape by making little snips in that cage to make it more flexible so that it can turn into this helix and have the appropriate twist and curvature to make the, the helical shape.
2: So the obvious thing to do is you've identified what those genes are then you can go in and deactivate them. And what happens to bacteria if you switch off the genes that normally make them like a
6: corkscrew shape?
5: It's kind of interesting. If we grow them in the lab in in broth, they are just fine. They grow normally, they swim normally, and they appear to be not more sensitive to stresses like acid or some of the the defence molecules that our bodies secrete to kill bacteria, they seem to be just fine. But if we take them now and try to infect them into the mouse stomach, because that is the model that we use since we don't do experiments on humans, now these strains with an abnormal shape cannot colonize the stomach.
2: Do you know why?
5: That is a really good question. We don't know exactly why. So the, the previous idea in the field was that it might help with motility, the ability of the bacteria to swim out of the acid part of the stomach and the lumen down into this mucus layer and next to the cells. But what we found is that they appear to swim normally, both in regular broth and in conditions where we, we make a gel-like matrix to mimic the thick mucus gel that overlies their stomach. When we watch the bugs by live video microscopy. We basically can't find any differences in velocity. So now we're left to uh, try to figure this out. So the, the good news is that we have this animal model where we can see a difference in the way the bacteria colonize. And so now we're trying to go in and look where the bacteria go, how that differs from the normal spiral-shaped bacteria, and try to get to the bottom of it.
2: And finally, Nina, presumably because you found that these genes, if they're not working, and you know how they work, which is helpful they seriously disable the bug. This presumably means you can now start to look for potential drugs that could target those genes and the things that those genes make because that might be a new way to treat or decolonize people who are carrying H. pylori.
5: Yes, in fact, that was a very exciting thing about our findings is that three of the four proteins, our work uncovered, appear to have a very specific biochemical activity in that they can cleave a peptide bond. And so so having a, an enzyme, as it were, that's that's functioning in your process makes a real possibility for screening for inhibitors of these enzymes that presumably then could render the bacteria unable to colonize. And another good thing is that these enzymes aren't found in human cells. So that's the other trick when you try to develop a a drug against bacteria is you want something that's specific to the bacterium, but it's not going to hurt our own cells.
2: So you can make it highly selective. Nina, thank you very much. We have to leave it there. Uh, Dr Nina Salama from the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Centre in Seattle. She's published that work this week in the journal Cell. Uh, We'll put details of that study, plus all of the other things we've been talking about so far on the show, on our website, nakedscientist.com, and it'll be in the news section. So that's nakedscientist.com forward slash news.
1: Bringing the facts to bear. The Naked Scientists.
3: You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith, Helen Scales and Dominic Ford. We're answering your science questions this week and also on the way we'll hear from Mira who's been having a lovely time at the Chelsea Flower Show to find out how to bring a bit of biodiversity into your garden.
2: If you'd like to get in touch with us through Twitter it's at Naked Scientists, or you can email us chris at thenakedscientist.com Dominic, got a question here for you. It's just come in actually. Pat in Lowestoft says, Why does Stephen Hawking claim there's almost certainly life in space? Should we be scared of aliens?
4: Well, it's of course very hard to know what what life there is out there. People have looked for radio radiation from uh, other civilizations using the Arecibo telescope in America, and uh, there are future telescopes that would hope to pick up radiation from aircraft radar and television transmitters on on other planets they so far haven't picked up anything in the closest thousand tens of thousands of stars around the earth so we probably think there's not much life immediately close to the earth but it's very hard to know what there is out there a few years
2: ago in fact it was five years ago i was in washington dc at the triple conference and there was a number of people at that conference talking about things like the SETI programme, looking for life. And some of the world's leading space scientists were arrayed there. And so we had them on a radio programme, in fact. And I went along the table and said, I'd like you all to guess or give an an estimate as to the likelihood of us finding alien life within the next 50 years.
4: Just out of interest, where would you put that number? I think there are a number of very interesting space missions coming up in the next 10, 15 years which have the potential to see Earth-like planets around other stars. And if we see those planets and we manage to see the light from those planets, we can take a spectrum of them and we can see what um, molecules are in their atmospheres. And if we start to see organic molecules in those atmospheres, we will know there's almost certainly life on those planets. It may not be intelligent. It was very hard to tell whether it's intelligent. But I think there is a lot of potential to see microbial life in the next 10, 15 years. Whether or not you'd call life on Earth
2: necessarily intelligent is also open to debate. Depends where you look, I think, Dominic. Thank you very much. Helen.
3: Right, well, before we get into more of your great questions, here's Ben and Dave explaining what you'll need to do to try this week's experiment.
7: For this week's Kitchen Science, we're going to be doing an absolutely beautiful, really simple demo, which was done by Sir Michael Faraday in his Christmas lectures. Faraday is an incredibly well-respected, well-renowned and influential scientist known for things like the dynamo and the very first motor. But what were these series of lectures about? Well, 150 years ago, he was doing the first set of Christmas lectures and he called them the chemical history of a candle. So it was all about how candles work and how flames work and generally, in fact, how people work as well. So for this experiment,
8: we don't need to build a dynamo or a motor, anything like that, but we're going to be demonstrating something with
7: a candle. It's very, very simple. All you need is a candle and a bit of mesh, so a metal sieve will be absolutely fine. So what do we actually need to do? We're putting a sieve in a candle. I guess the candle needs to be lit. That's right. You want to get the candle upright, nice and stable, ideally a candle which produces a nice big flame. You want to light the candle and then put the piece of gauze or sieve over the top of the candle flame, move it through the candle flame, up and down, have a look at the candle flame and have a look above the candle flame and see if you see anything strange happening. So when we put a sieve into the flame of a candle, we're looking at the flame
8: itself to see if we see anything unusual there, but also above the flame where we might see smoke or something like that? Yeah, have a look carefully at that smoke and see if anything changes. So get your candles lit and get your kitchen sieve into the flame. Let us know what happens and we'll be back with more later on in the show.
3: Fantastic. Thanks, Ben and Dave. If you want to let us know what you think you'll see or what you will see, then uh, place a metal gauze into a, a candle flame and let us know. Tweet your experimental results to at Naked or if you want to give us a bit more detail, why don't you send us an email, chris at scientist.com.
2: It really is a beautiful experiment, and it does show something very important historically, as we'll hear from Ben and Dave later on in the programme. Thank you very much, Helen. Lots of questions coming in. Ricardo Hernandez-Lopez says... Do bacteria grow over soap? The answer is actually yes they can because soap isn't actually very toxic for bacteria. The reason that washing your hands with soap and water works so well to decontaminate them is actually the physical decontamination. When you rub your hands together, the soap helps to prise away various oils and other layers from the skin that the bacteria are clinging to and it therefore detaches the bacteria. It's not actually being necessarily antibacterial. Now some soaps will kill bacteria, the majority don't because the bacteria have got quite a tough cell wall around them so they're resistant but it's the physical washing that gets rid of them one interesting thing though when we've had lots of outbreaks of winter vomiting disease the norovirus you see lots and lots of these alcohol dispensers springing up all over the place saying clean your hands this will help to stem outbreaks of norovirus actually norovirus doesn't have its outside an oily bag which can be attacked by alcohol. It's a very tough little protein husk that the virus is made of and as a result the virus is completely immune to alcohol hand wipes and therefore all you're doing when you're using alcohol is you're producing a pure culture of norovirus on your hands. Soap and water on the other hand does work so the best thing to do Always wash your hands, Helen.
3: Well, that is rather lovely. But I just wanted to ask. Um, I've always wondered if you go to a public loo and there's a nasty bit of soap sitting on the side, and you think, ugh, <laughs> is it better to use that soap if it's covered in bacteria, or uh, and you know, and wash your hands and, and rub off your own bacteria, or should you leave it alone? What do you think?
2: This is a bugbear of mine actually, because when you go to public conveniences, the first thing you have to do to get into them is is open the door, of course, and the doors always open. Inwards, you can push the door open, which means you don't have to touch any part of it. But when you're coming out again, you have to touch the handle on the the door of the loo, then you've got to touch all over the taps, and then you've got to touch the door handle to open it and pull it inwards again. Now, okay, lots of people will be good in the toilet, they won't make a mess, but they will also wash their hands diligently afterwards. You then go out, leaving the toilet with clean hands, but you touch the door handle that the one in a million people who hasn't washed their hands, has just touched and decorated with a nice culture of bacteria, of faecal origin probably, but also other things are possible, and it's now on your hands which were nice and clean, so there's no other bugs there to compete with them. So now you've got a nice pure culture of pathogens all over your hands. Why are the doors not organised so that you can push the door open on the way out or have some kind of automatic door? Or more lavatories these days are getting themselves organised so that, that you sort of go around almost like a maze to get out. But it means you don't have to physically open external doors to get out and touch surfaces because that's how these bacteria spread. It, it's touching surfaces. So to answer your question, you will pick up bugs when you touch surfaces, including the soap dispenser. And this is why in many places where medicine is done, doctors' surgeries, nurses' rooms and so on, you'll see that the taps have these long wings on them. And this is so that you can actually close them off with your elbows rather than actually having to physically touch them with the thing you've just washed. So, sorry, Helen... Despite your best ministrations to your hands, you're probably actually picking up bugs by using that grossy bit of soap, I'm sorry to say.
3: I'll just have to keep my elbows clean by the sound of it.
2: I've actually got a question here for you, uh, Helen. This has just come in. It's from Andrea Lewis, who says, when are there too few animals to save a species? Pandas and other endangered animals, for example. What is the cutoff when there won't be enough genetic diversity left in the numbers that are left in the wild for them to be saved?
3: That's a really good question, and it opens up an awful number of issues to consider. But we can certainly just get get into that to some extent. I think my first question would be, what do we what do we mean by saving the species? Are we talking about them persisting in the wild? Do you want to keep them in captivity? Um, those will require very different numbers of, of individuals within a population. But also, we're talking about genetic diversity. And one thing you can think of is that when a population is um, is cut down when it declines you do get the problem of inbreeding and and that's what we're really hinting at if there's not enough genetic diversity you might get inbreeding and you might actually have the appearance of, of, of deleterious genes coming together um, and and causing problems in in the uh, the animals that are being born but that said there have also been situations when we've experienced we've sort of thought that maybe genetic diversity is the reason why some wild species are not doing so well, when in fact it isn't. So one example is the cheetahs. Now, we think that historically they went through a very big bottleneck. These are these lovely, um, very um, fast-running cats that run around in Africa. Um, and, And there were various studies that pointed towards genetic diversity as the problem. Things like they could take skin grafts from any cheetah and put it onto another one and it wouldn't be rejected. And so conservationists began to think Aha, it must be this lack of genetic diversity, which is why we're not seeing enough new baby cheetahs surviving in the wild.' In fact, this wasn't true at all. It was a it was a glitch in the in the in the studies of those skin grafts that meant it wasn't anything to do with genetic diversity. It was because lions were eating um the baby cheetahs, and I think hyenas as well. So they were being predated upon by other animals, and when they were in areas where these weren't, they were doing fine. So it's a tricky thing to think about. You can also think about well, in fact, the island of Madagascar was colonized by just a handful of different mammals. So they had very low genetic diversity. It doesn't necessarily mean a species species is going to go extinct it's all about lots of different factors that affect whether or not it's going to survive in the world. which I think is what really we're talking about is are they going to survive and can we try and stop extinctions from happening and there are lots of things we have to consider
2: And as we heard last week um, when we were talking about Tasmanian devils, actually being a bit inbred can be dangerous for another reason because then when you get something happening as the devils have, which is you've got a a line of cells which become cancerous, they can then go from one animal to the next, almost like an organ graft, which are accepted and not rejected by the immune system of the recipient because they're so inbred. So I think there are dangers of, of a dwindling population. But thank you very much, Alan.
1: Distilling the best science. The Naked Scientists It's
2: The Naked Scientists for Chris Smith with Helen Scales and with Dominic Ford it's our science Q&A special this week and we're answering all of your questions uh, our Twitter address is at Naked Scientists or do of course send us an email chris at the dot Dominic here's a fantastic question for you uh, the Reverend Dr Mike Billers would like to know would it be possible to make a hollow metallic sphere float if you suck out all of the air and create a vacuum
4: inside? Yes, it certainly would be. What's important is whether the average density of the sphere plus whatever's inside it is greater or less than the density of the water that it would be floating in. So, for example, a ship floats, because although a ship is made of steel and that's very heavy, it's got air in there as well, and the air is much less dense than the water it's floating in. So a ship as a whole floats. Now, if you take a, a sphere, the, the metal outside of a sphere will be much heavier than the water but because it hasn't got any anything in it that doesn't contribute to the density so its average density will be quite low so it will float it will actually float better than if you filled it with say hydrogen or helium which although they are lighter than air they still have some mass to them more than the mass of the vacuum which is nothing at all it
2: is a good party question that isn't it which is going to float more a barrel a sealed barrel full of air, a sealed barrel full of hydrogen or a barrel with a vacuum. And most people will go for the hydrogen and, and actually it's, it's the vacuum that floats the best.
4: Yes, of course you don't see barrels filled with vacuum very often because it's so hard to actually suck, <laughs> suck air out of a, a barrel. Thank you very much,
2: Dominic. Uh, right, OK, um, I've got a quick one here for uh, you, Helen. Why is bird poo white, asks Adrian.
3: Excellent question. And it's not actually anything to do with what they eat, which is one You know, you could think, well, maybe they eat something that's white. But no, they eat just the same stuff as as all sorts of other creatures. But it's about how they process that food. And it's all about proteins and nucleic acids and how they break that down. Um, We break down um, proteins and we we all produce ammonia, but we make it into urea, which we then dissolve in water and get rid of it in urine. But we need lots of water to do that. So that means we have to drink lots, which means we don't really survive very well when there's not much water around. So birds and reptiles have a better way of dealing perhaps with lymphocytes low water and the need to get rid of all that nasty toxic ammonia and they create something called uric acid which is a solid, mostly sort of a solid or a paste Um, and that is white and that's why their poo is white and in fact it's a very valuable stuff guano has been mined in lots of parts of the world to be used as fertiliser and wars have been fought in fact over it because in fact it could be used to make gunpowder because it's got very high nitrogen and phosphorus in it so uh, there you go White, white bird poo has lots of rather extraordinary applications
2: Indeed. Thank you, Helen. Uh, We've heard from Malkin Lowestoft, who says, referring back to the point Dominic was discussing about the prospects of finding life elsewhere in the universe, given the multiplicity of galaxies, all unexplored, it would be incredibly conceited of us to think that there's no life out there somewhere. We can therefore assume that the sum of it is probably a lot more advanced than we are, which would be no bad thing. Right, well now it's time to join Mira Senthalingam who's been off enjoying the sunshine this week at the Royal Horticultural Society's Chelsea Flower Show and she's been finding out how to save the rainforest and entice lots of wildlife into her garden.
9: Here in the UK, it's been brightening up. It's a lot hotter, which means that all of us are out and about getting our gardens ready for the barbecue season. Now, the highlight of any horticultural calendar is the Royal Horticultural Society's Chelsea Flower Show. One particular concern being addressed is the destruction of our rainforest. So I'm now in a beautiful stand, really, sitting in a lovely wooden hut with John Burton, who's the CEO of the World Land Trust.
10: The exhibit we've constructed here shows at one end Simulation of what the rainforest can look like a lush, dense forest. Then we have the ranger's hut, including a window opening onto a plasma screen, and actually a live webcam transmission from the forest. So what people are seeing is what's actually going on in Brazil right at this moment. And then the other side of the ranger's hut, we've got a little garden with a tree nursery showing how we grow the trees for reforestation projects and also the sort of tropical plants that people don't realise without those tropical forests, we wouldn't have some of these plants. The sweet potatoes from Paraguay, the tomatoes from South America, the chilli peppers, the pineapples. There's so many of our foods that we just accept because we get them in the supermarket. But without the tropical forests, we wouldn't have them.
9: What's the key message that you're trying to give to visitors this week?
10: Well, I think the key one here is that um, everyone thinks of the rainforest in terms of the Amazon. And, yeah, 30% of the Amazon has been destroyed. But when you put that in the perspective of the Atlantic rainforest, the Mata Atlantica, where 93% has already gone, it gives you an idea of what the real losses are. And something like 40% of the species found in the Mata Atlantica are endemic to that region. So we've got a real problem.
9: What are the main ways you're going about addressing the problem, then?
10: Well, there's two ways. One is buying up existing forests and putting that under strict protection. And the other is buying land between protected areas, creating corridors where it may have been cleared in the past and doing reforestation projects on them. You have a a variety of ways of doing it. If it's only been cleared fairly recently, just leaving it alone, it'll often regenerate. Other areas cleared a long time ago, we need to do regeneration we need to do planting for instance in our brazilian project they use 60 species of trees they concentrate initially on some of the fast growing ones because one of the big problems is getting them going that there's often african grass which is very invasive and it's difficult for the trees to break through that so you need to create shade as quickly as possible so we use the fast growing species they provide the shade for the slow growing species timber species to grow eventually
9: Now I'm just walking through the Grand Pavilion and there's a selection of plants that have really caught my eye and that's the stand of the Hampshire carnivorous plants. They vary greatly in their appearance. Some of them are up to a metre in height. They're tubes and some of them bend over almost with swan heads. With me is David Tite, who's manning the stand. So what type of carnivorous plant are these?
11: What we've actually got is a selection of carnivorous plants from around the world who have various methods of attracting flies, usually by nectar, sometimes by pattern the plant produces a nectar on its lid the flies are attracted to that and the coloration of the plant and what will happen is the nectar is a slightly narcotic intoxicating juice which clogs up the fly's feet at the same time while it's partying on the lid it'll get drunk it'll fall in the tube eventually once it gets round to the sweet spot and can't hang on whereupon it's constantly digested for the next three months over the course of the summer.
9: So how does a plant go about digesting it once the fly's fallen into the trap?
11: What it needs is the vibration and the movement, at which point it releases an enzyme through the wall of the tube on the inside. That's very similar to the enzyme within our stomachs, which break down the soft tissues in the fly that the plant then reabsorbs through the walls of the inside of the tube.
9: Therefore getting its nutrition.
11: Right, trace elements absorbed, plant has a sleep through the winter, wakes up again next spring and does it all again.
9: The theme of this year's show is biodiversity due to it being the International Year of Biodiversity. So what more fitting than the Bradstone Biodiversity Garden? So I'm now here with Paul Harvey-Brooks who designed this garden. So Paul, how in a space of 7 metres by 5 metres do you get the maximum biodiversity possible?
6: Well the very definition of biodiversity is the number of species within a given space and here we've tried to literally cram in as much as we can whilst making it very beautiful. We've got lots of floriferous flowers that are nectar rich, they're very simple, the colours that insects really like and then we've kind of added into the way the garden's landscaped features that are particularly of interest to certain birds and animals.
9: We're currently sitting in a wonderful pillared porch towards the back of the garden. Um, I can see a wide array of flowers in front of us so what particular flowers have you chosen and what array of insects have been attracted by them?
6: the flowering part of the garden, it was more of the, the colour and the structure which was important and the colours that we're looking at are the kinds of colours that insects are particularly attracted to and that's from research carried out at Sheffield and we see the colour as these kind of rich mauves, lilacs and yellows and obviously insects are seeing it in UV light so it's different for them. And then we looked at plants that kind of give shelter, give food and things like the hedge where we've left the top slightly shaggy is particularly important for starlings and blackbirds because they won't nest in a perfectly flat hedge and directly fly into to it, they need to roost first and then fly in so if you don't have a tree, a hedge where you've got this kind of loose shaggy approach is much more beneficial. The other thing we've looked at are things like crevice nesting birds, house sparrows, in particular have declined by about 70% in 20 years and it's simply because we don't build in a vernacular fashion and we certainly don't keep older buildings as untidy as we could do to allow them to nest so we've, we've made what we believe to be a very beautiful kind of portico and you would find a crevice nesting bird there after a couple of years if it kind of Settling in.
9: And as well as birds, um, what else have you managed to attract?
6: We've had damselflies, we've had blackbird, blue tit, bees, honeybees, it's just, it's just been a, a myriad, but we, you know, kind of a, a long term approach this garden would also be attracting small mammals like hedgehogs.
9: Now, you also have a log wall here. So what's that all about, and how is that improving biodiversity?
6: Well, in the urban garden, uh, stagshorn beetles are particularly prevalent, or at least they were uh, up until very recently when it became very tidy. And so what we wanted to do is create a kind of decomposing log wall. So the top layer is fresh logs, and and the bottom is is really rotten. And stagshorn beetles lay uh, their eggs there, and the larvae actually eat the wood. So we wanted it to look good, but also provide a really important habitat.
9: So it's really doing its job?
6: Well, I think so. I mean, uh, people have been very complimentary and we've kind of seen insects around. In a way, a garden without all of this wildlife is fairly soulless and and for us it's important to kind of make it breathe and, and the breath is the insect.
3: That was Paul Harvey-Brooks, who designed the Bradstone Biodiversity Garden at this year's Chelsea Flower Show. And before him, John Burton, CEO of the World Land Trust, and David Tite from Hampshire Carnivorous Plants, talking to Mary Syntheningham about how to help our environment from the rainforest right down to our own back gardens. Right, well, i have had a question from WH Rogers, who wants to know, is there any connection between high tides and earthquakes? Chris, what do you think?
2: Sounds a bit bizarre, doesn't it, to think could the sea be causing earthquakes? But actually the answer is yes, it possibly could. Now, it's a slightly indirect answer to this, but there was a paper that came out. It was in the journal Nature, and it was last June, and it was by a US geologist who's called Selwyn Sachs and a researcher also in Taiwan. Taiwan's interesting because it's got a very, very rapid rate of tectonic plate movement. Plates there are moving and colliding at the rate of about 15 centimetres a year, which is a huge amount of movement. And this means that we have faults you have enormous amounts of energy being stored up. So Selwyn Sachs and his colleagues were measuring strain energy. They were putting strain gauges into the ground there to measure how these faults are moving and storing energy over time. What they were really surprised to see was some rather weird recordings on their strain gauges at certain points. And what they found is that they were seeing the arrival of typhoons, these big tropical storms associated with very low pressures. So normally when a low pressure moves in over land, what happens is that the low pressure makes the land swell up a bit. So their strain gauges were recording that, the land was swelling up. But sometimes, instead of the land swelling up, they actually found the land shrinking. And the only way they can explain this is if there's been an earthquake, a so-called slow earthquake. Now what's going on, it turns out, is that when you have a very low pressure system, the air pressure drops, so the land swells, but where there's sea, which is adjacent to the land of course... Because the water doesn't get out of the way, the water doesn't swell, instead, more water comes in to fill the area with low pressure. So, this means the pressure on the sea floor is roughly the same, but the pressure over land is lower. And therefore, any faults open up for this reason, because you've now got a pressure differential between the land and the sea. And this is more likely to unload faults and trigger earthquakes. And what they found is possibly happening in Taiwan is that you've got these so-called slow earthquakes, which are earthquakes that happen over hours to days. They don't go all of a sudden. They gently let go of the energy. And this slowly dissipates the stored energy in the fault. But the thing that was triggering it, they found on their recordings, was the arrival of these typhoons and the typhoons are basically making the tide come in metaphorically so i guess you could say that the movement of large bodies of water can potentially trigger an earthquake so the answer is
3: yeah it's amazing the complex interactions of our world isn't it
2: Uh, now very quickly on this one dominic brian says when driving around at this time of year and looking ahead you see what looks like a reflection or water on the road i know this is a mirage but what is it what are we actually seeing and what are the
4: conditions that are making it happen Well this is interesting because of course we normally think that light travels in straight lines and so when light comes into your eye you know what direction it's coming so you know what direction you're looking in. But light doesn't always travel in straight lines. For example when it goes through a lens we know it's bent and that's because the lens is made of a glass which has a different refractive index from the air around it. Now air also has its own refractive index which depends on the temperature of the air. So if you have hot air it has a different refractive index if you have cold air. And on a hot day, the sun will come down, it will heat the surface of the road and make the air close to the road, but very hot in comparison to the air above. And that means that light rays are bent away from the road. And so when you look down at the road, the ray is actually bending away from the road and back up into the sky, and you're seeing a patch of sky in the road. And of course, water also looks like that because water is reflecting the sky and making a bit of sky appear in the road. So the mirage looks just like water and it's a trick of the line. Dominic, thank you very much. You're listening to
2: The Naked Scientists. So Chris, Helen and Dominic. We're answering your science questions. Lots still coming in. Now, coming up, we've got our question of the week. We'll be finding out why sugar puffs and other things can make your wee smell strange. But first, we've got to go back to Ben and Dave for the second part of this week's Kitchen Science.
8: This week, we're showing you an experiment that was demonstrated by Sir Michael Faraday in his Christmas lectures around 150 years ago. And what we wanted you to do was get a candle... Light it and then hold a metal gauze of sorts, something like a kitchen sieve, down into the flame and have a look at what changes. Dave, what should we expect
7: to see? Well, a simple way to find out is to try it, isn't it?
8: So let's get our candle lit and you have a piece of metal gauze. I can see how a sieve would work just as well.
7: And we need to lower this into the flame. OK, you need to wait a little bit for the candle to start burning with a nice long flame. It actually takes a while for this to happen, because the way a candle works is the wax is a kind of fuel. Most candles are actually made out of a wax, which is very, very similar to petrol, basically longer molecules than petrol. That actually won't burn as a solid or even as a liquid. The only way that you can get wax to burn is as a gas. So the wax has to evaporate. It doesn't evaporate very well from even the kind of flat bowl of wax which you get at the top of the candle actually evaporates much better from the wick wax is lifted up the wick through surface tension and then moved up into the warm part of the flame and it evaporates and then it can burn with the oxygen in the air so it's the wax vapor that burns does that mean you could melt a candle down quite safely on say a kitchen hob yeah and it shouldn't burn unless you get that wax hot enough to start boiling and evaporating at which point you'll get a huge bucket of flaming candle wax which i have done in the past but i wouldn't recommend right so
8: this is clearly the safer way to do it so once the flame is big enough and burning quite steadily
7: we need to lower the gauze into the flame and what should we see so if we come over the top of the flame so we can look down on it and if i lower the gauze over the top something rather wonderful happens
8: Well, the first thing I notice is there's some black smoke and you seem to be sort of squashing the flame down. The flame itself doesn't get through the gauze. And as you get lower, the the smoke's now gone white, but the flame itself now appears as a ring
7: rather than a solid-looking flame. So the flame is actually hollow. If you move it all the way up and down, almost all the way along its length, the flame is actually hollow. This is to do with how the flame is working. It's this wax vapor reacting with the oxygen in the air, and when it does that, it releases lots of heat. And um, you also tend to get some slightly unburnt carbon um, lumps of carbon, which then get very, very hot, and they glow the bright, beautiful yellow colour, which means you, you can see by a candle. Now, the oxygen can't get to the whole flame at once; it gets to the outside first, so the outside of the flame burns first, and so you just get this hollow tube of burning wax. So what we're looking at here is a surface over which
8: the actual burning is happening, but inside the bit that looked hollow, that's just full of unburnt wax vapour.
7: If you put the grill very, very low down on the flame, so there's hardly any flame left at the bottom, you see lots and lots of white smoke. And this is the wax vapour coming through the grill and then condensing from little droplets of wax in the air, which looks like white smoke.
8: But when the gauze was further
7: up, we were getting black smoke out of it. Is that also unburnt wax? It's actually partially burnt wax. When it's partially burnt, you get lumps of carbon. And if you stop the burning at that point by putting the grill in the way, you basically let these little black lumps of carbon come through. They condense and form a black, sooty smoke. So the black smoke is
8: partially burnt wax where we're seeing all the carbon that's left and the white smoke is actually totally unburnt wax vapour. But the flame isn't a solid thing. You're not really pushing it down with the gauze. Why can't the flame just get through the gauze and carry
7: on burning? Well, the flame sort of got two properties. One of it is a load of gases which can react together and burn together. And the other thing is they need to be very hot so they're hot enough to burn. What the grill does is it lets the gases through perfectly well, as you can see by the smoke coming through. But what it does do is suck the heat away. It conducts heat, so it conducts the heat away from the flame, cooling the flame down below the point at which the hot wax and the oxygen can react together, so it stops them burning, and so it means you can get this beautiful cross-section of the flame. So that lets all of the fuel through, but because it takes the heat away, it
8: stops the reaction there and then. That sounds like quite a good way of stopping a fire from spreading.
7: That's right. When Faraday was a young man, he was working on a project with his boss, Sir Humphrey Davy. And there was a big problem with mines at the time, coal mines, because gases would seep out of the coal, things like methane, which were very, very flammable. So if you went down there with a candle, you could set off this methane, create a huge explosion, blow up the mine and kill hundreds of people. So Sir Humphrey Davy invented the Davy lamp, which was basically an oil lamp surrounded by this gauze. Um, which meant the oxygen could get in so it could burn. But even if the methane got in and exploded inside the lamp, that flame would get stopped by the gauze and wouldn't transfer to all the methane in the rest of the mine, and so the miners would be safe. It's also still used today if you have a box which might produce sparks or small flames in a place which might have an explosive atmosphere. They surround it by grills.
8: So very simple, very effective science, saving thousands of lives even still today. That's it for Kitchen Science this week, and we'll be back with more very soon.
3: Thanks, guys. And if you didn't try it for yourself, go on, have a go. Or you could find an explanation and some video clips online at thenakedscientistscom forward slash kitchen science.
2: It's The Naked Scientists with Chris, Helen and Dominic and we're answering all of your science questions this week or as many as we can. Dominic, here's one from Carol Hatcher who's actually one of your fans on our Naked Astronomy monthly podcast. She said, This is Carol from California. My entire family listen regularly to your show and we love it. I have a question for your astrophysicists. When they discover an extrasolar planet by the wobble that it imparts on its host star, how do they distinguish between the wobble from the centre of mass of the planetary system or just a single planet? In other words, if there's a clutch of planets there making the star wobble, how can you tell that from just one planet making the star wobble?
4: Well, Carol's exactly right. Whenever a planet orbits around a star, it exerts a gravitational force on that star, and that force pulls the star back and forth, and that produces a redshift in the spectrum that you can then observe. You can observe it quite easily because the spectra of stars have quite narrow, well-defined lines in them that you can see wobbling back and forth at the star moves. By looking at the wobble of those lines you can deduce both the radius of the orbit of the planet and also its mass. The mass determines how far the features wobble and the radius determines the frequency with which they wobble. If you've got several planets they will orbit with different periods and that will produce a different period of oscillation in those features. So for example you might have an oscillation on a 10-day timescale superimposed on an oscillation with a 100-day timescale, just like a chord in music. And by taking apart those frequency components, you can work out how many planets there are and what radius orbits they're in.
2: You basically have to build a model and come up with the only solution that satisfies the wobble that you're seeing.
4: Yes, that's right.
2: And that tells you. It's interesting because we interviewed someone on this programme called Dr. Christoph Lovis, who was from the Geneva Observatory back in two thousand and six, and he did precisely what you've just said for a star about forty light years away from Earth. It was called H D six nine eight three zero. And in fact there's a very interesting interview with him on the Naked Scientist website. So if you look up Christoph Lovies, Lovis, L O V I S on the Naked Scientist, and, and you can hear in slightly different uh, explanation for basically what you described, Dominic. Thanks very much. Helen, I've got a question here which has come in from Titus J.C. Ung Thasira. I hope I've pronounced that correctly, who says, I have an aquarium in my home and I was wondering why the UV steriliser I have in it can get rid of algae, but UV in sunlight or from UV bulbs placed above the tank will actually paradoxically promote the growth of algae.
3: Well, it's, it's all about the types of UV, ultraviolet radiation that you've got, um, both in the sterilising bulb that you've got in your setup, and that's just all around us from the sun that comes down in um, Through the atmosphere. And you've got uh, UVA, UVB, and UVC. Now, the most damaging form of UV is UVC, and that's what's in your sterilizing bulb. It'll be at a very high intensity, and your water will probably get sucked through, through a filter and fed past this UV bulb. And that will do a very good job of killing off all those bugs that you don't want by this very powerful form of UV light but the UV light that's around us naturally from the sun or even from a light bulb above your tank, that UVC will be very easily blocked by the water. Because it's so short, it actually gets very easily disrupted and it won't actually make its way very far into the water and that's why nothing in the tank really gets affected by it. Um, so you need that very concentrated, intensive burst of damaging UV to keep the water clean, but otherwise, you know, we do very fine with, with the UV that bounces around in, in the room and, and we're OK.
2: Because the stuff that we're normally seeing is a little bit of UVA, a bit of UVB. And we have an ozone layer, which is really good at excluding most of the UV, including that UVC. So in terms of sunlight, for the most part, we're we're protected.
3: Mostly protected. Obviously, we still can get burnt by A and B, um, and different sun creams can do that. But uh, in terms of the life that's in your tank, I think the water is enough to keep them safe from any bombarding UV light that's coming in from the surface.
2: Most filter systems have a little bioreactor in the bottom as well. We have lots of bits of plastic and things with a high surface area. And good bugs that you like grow on there. And then, after the water's gone through the sterilizer, which wipes everything out, including the algal cells, it then goes through this bioreactor in the bottom of the filter, which then reseeds back into the water, good bugs, as well as consuming some of the organic content, which is how these filters actually work.
3: Absolutely. Right, I've got a question from Alan in Durham who wants to know why is it that most parts of our body can be repaired if we get them damaged but that doesn't seem to be the same case for our hearts?
2: It's not strictly true that most things... Can repair if they're damaged. Some tissues can replace lost cells, so if you cut yourself, graze some skin, it will grow back. But if you have a more catastrophic injury, then without the scaffolding of tissue there to support the growth and new stem cells there to provide a supply of new cells, then tissues and complicated organs cannot repair themselves. The key thing really is in this word stem cell and the heart does appear to respond very badly to injury. If you have interruption to the blood flow of the heart by blocking a coronary artery, consequently the muscle that's supplied by that blocked artery is starved of oxygen and it does die. And the heart does not heal by repairing and replacing the lost cells. In a human, the heart heals by producing fibrous tissue and you get a scar. That, of course, can't contribute anything to the pumping ability of the heart and so it increases the risk of things like heart failure. But not all animals are like that. And in fact, uh, researchers, including Kazu Kikuchi, who published a paper in Nature uh, in January of this year, they found that zebrafish, in fact, can regenerate almost a third of their heart. If you cut away a third of the left ventricle, the main chamber of the heart, the equivalent of that in the zebrafish, then the zebrafish will regenerate a whole new heart. And they thought, well, if we can work out what they're doing, perhaps we can work out how to make humans better. And what they did was to use a specific construct so that they could turn on a gene just in heart muscle cells that labelled those cells with a glowing green colour. They then injured the heart and watched to see what happened as the heart repaired. Their theory was, well, if stem cells are coming out and repairing the damage and they're nothing to do with the muscle, then the heart would just make a new muscle and they won't glow green. If the muscle cells themselves in the zebrafish heart are repairing the damage, then you get a glowing green heart. That's exactly what they saw. So what this tells you is that in these fish... When you injure the heart tissue, unlike in a human, the muscle cells respond to the injury by doing what's called de-differentiating. They make themselves less specialised, they become more stem cell-like. They then divide lots and lots of times to make a big pool of cells that then grow to the right places, wire themselves up and then turn back into muscle cells to repair the damage. They have found some genes, including one called GATA4, which seems to be turned on to do this process and is also used when the heart is developing in an embryo in the first place. And this suggests if we can work out how to do this, it might be possible to trick human heart cells to do the same thing and therefore turn into stem cell-like cells in the heart that's been injured and therefore repair a damaged area, not with a scar, but with healthy, fresh muscle again.
3: It's extraordinary what we can learn from other members of the animal kingdom that will hopefully help ourselves in some of the problems that us humans have to deal with.
2: Well, exactly, and I think this this shows you how useful having something like a little fish is, because fish are very cheap, they're very easy to look at, and these fish are transparent, which means that you can grow lots of them in a little tiny dish and see exactly what's going on inside them with simple microscopy. And this then informs other biology of much more complicated organs like rats and mice and ultimately humans. So it's making a very, very simple model of a complicated problem and just distilling out what the crux of it is so we can hopefully find some answers.
3: Emilio Romero wants to know, do sweeteners alter metabolism? I should just explain that he's a keen runner and he read somewhere that athletes maybe should should avoid aspartamine and sucralose um, when they're working out uh, because it can interfere with your metabolism. But they didn't say why. Is that really the case?
2: I've seen some studies where they have looked at children who are, and also young juvenile rats, who are being fed sweeteners or normal sugar. One suggestion that some people have made, I'm not sure whether the evidence for this is robust, but it sounds plausible. If you feed juvenile rats on sweeteners, what happens is that the brain begins to misinterpret how many calories there really are in sweet things, and it gets used to the fact that when you eat something which tastes that sweet... And you don't get any calories for it. If you then do get into a situation where you can eat some sugary food, real sugar, sweet stuff, you then tend to overeat because the normal metabolic gait that would say, I know how many calories I've taken in now because when I take in this level of sweetness, I normally get this number of calories. That's been thwarted by eating the sweeteners. And as a result, it can lead to overeating and weight gain and there's some evidence that people who are on these things for longer periods as children may then develop a habit or a sweeter tooth when they're older but as I say I think it's speculation I'm not sure how plausible it really is interestingly there's a paper that's come out this week it's by Jay Slack who's uh, over in America they're actually looking at the bitter taste associated with sweeteners because you know when you eat something like saccharin it, it has an, an aftertaste and they've found a chemical that they call GIV-3727 the reason they call it that is because the real name of the molecule 4223 trimethyl acid. Try saying that when you've had more than a sweetener. And uh, this blocks the receptor for bitter taste buds, so you could call it a bitter blocker. And uh, as a result, things that were bitter tasting now taste sweet. So you can associate or accompany your sweetener with that molecule. And they've done it on humans, and people stop tasting the nasty bitter taste and they only taste the nice sweet taste. So isn't that nice?
3: That is good, because I think the sweeteners are disgusting. I can't stand them.
2: Dominic, here's one for you. Jeff says, can a moon have a moon? So in other
4: words, if you've got a moon orbiting a planet somewhere in the solar system, uh, can that moon itself have a moon? Well, yes, it could. Among astronomical bodies, there's quite a long hierarchy of bodies orbiting around other bodies. Of course, the moon orbits around the Earth and the Earth around the sun. But the sun itself is orbiting about the centre of the Milky Way galaxy, and that itself, we think, is orbiting around within a local group of galaxies, and that, we think, is part of a larger supercluster of galaxies. So you can certainly add another step to that hierarchy and put a body into orbit about the Moon, and that is, of course, what we did when we went to the Moon and we sent the Apollo spacecraft to the Moon. However, each step of the hierarchy tends to be less stable than the previous step. It would take something quite catastrophic to take the Sun out of the Milky Way galaxy, but to strip the Earth out of orbit from the Sun would actually be scarily easy if a star were to pass too close to our own. And stripping the Moon off the Earth, we think that will probably happen on a timescale of billions of years, naturally anyway. So I think something orbiting about the Moon would probably only stay there for a matter of years before being shed into solar orbit.
2: Oh, well, that's, that's reassuring then, I suppose, it, in some respects. Helen, here's one for you. Um, Stacey Rollins says, could we restock the oceans by releasing captive bred fish? We're being encouraged to eat a lot of fish for health reasons. Um, this is depleting the oceans. If we breed them in captivity, can we then release them into the wild and repopulate the wild?
3: It's a very nice idea in some ways, um, but first of all, you have to think about the scale of what you're trying to do here. The oceans are absolutely enormous. The numbers of fish we're catching are absolutely enormous. Um, And I just don't think we have the technology if we even wanted to go about this, if we thought it was a good idea. We are doing some smaller scale things. Some um, European eels for example are being restocked and I'm sort of saying that in inverted commas because they aren't actually being bred in captivity. They're just being moved around the place because in some areas they're doing very, very badly so the tiny baby eels are being moved to try and restock rivers to allow people to carry on fishing. Um, There are things like genetic issues you might need to consider as well. What sort of species, where are they coming from to restock them? And And I think really we mustn't forget that the oceans have an incredible ability to restock themselves we just have to give them a chance when we take away fishing pressure from certain areas um, we do see an extraordinary recovery so we really have to focus on oceans healing themselves i think i think stepping in and doing it ourselves is not the approach it's it's a case of, of letting the oceans do it themselves and giving them a chance
2: indeed so true of many aspects of life thanks helen now it's time to find out what that whiffy stuff is all about Diana O'Carrolls here with this week's Question of the Week.
12: This week it's time to don the marigolds and get out the nose pegs.
4: Hello, my name is Connor Rouse, uh, and I'm calling to ask, why does eating sugar puffs make your wee smell funny?
13: Are wee what we eat? My name is Glenis James, and I work as a nutritionist at MRC Human Nutrition Research in Cambridge. There's a thought that high sugar-containing cereals could make your urine smell either because they contain a compound in there when it's metabolised that has an odour, or it could actually be that there's so much sugar in there, it's beyond our renal capability.
12: So the kidneys might not be able to process all of that sugar, which could lead to microbes breeding and then creating an interesting smell. But this is quite unusual. So where else do we encounter smelly wee?
13: Lots of foods are known to make our urine smell. So, for example, something like asparagus contains a sulphur-containing compound, methylmecaptin, and another compound called asparagine. And when these are metabolised in the digestive tract, they release a very typical odour. So people who eat asparagus will often say that their urine smells in a particular way.
12: But not everyone is affected by the asparagus phenomenon.
13: Now, whether it's because there's only half the population who contain a gene to break this down or that only half of us contain the gene that can actually smell it, would also explain why only a percentage of the population actually can smell this specific urinous smell when we eat asparagus. So it might be that you can eat asparagus and produce urine that smells, but you can't smell it, or it could be vice versa. Similar foods are things like cheese, garlic, eggs and beer. They're also known to make the urine smell quite particular. The compound that is found in asparagus is also actually found in skunk secretions. So the smell that you think of with a skunk is the same smell that's released when you eat asparagus.
12: And some people report that certain curry flavours can make it through to the other side too. And this may be either a result of the flavour compounds or their broken down components. But the only way to test if the asparagus smell makes it into your urine would be to have other people give it a sniff. I don't know if anyone else has tried this and from genes coding for things you urinize to things you memorise.
10: Hi, my name is Zachary Andy from Greensboro, North Carolina in the US. My question is, can our genes code for our memories?
12: Can memories be handed down through the family? Let us know what you think with the email address chris at scientists.com or by writing on the forum, and the address is thenakedscientists.com forward slash forum.
2: Diana O'Carroll with this week's Question of the Week. You can catch it as a podcast in its own right on our website at nakedscientist.com forward slash QOTW. That's it for this week. Thank you very much to uh, Helen Scales and Dominic Ford and also to our wonderful production team, Ben Valster, Miracintha Thalingam, Dave Ansell and Tom Simpkins. We're back next week talking about social insects, finding out how bees warn each other of danger with a stop signal and also radio tagging ants to find out what they do and where they go. Do join us if you can.
1: The Naked Scientist podcast comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC, and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com.
0: Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK.